Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. Hey there, it's Jim Stengel, host of the CMO Podcast. We're all marketers here, so let's be real for a sec. We all know that your website shouldn't be a static asset. It should be a dynamic part of your strategy to build your brand and drive conversions. That's Marketing 101. But 54% of marketing leaders say web updates take too long. That's over half of you listening right now. And that's where Webflow comes in. Their visual-first platform allows you to build, launch, and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. What's the first brand in your life that made an impact on you? So when uh, when I was little, my this was this is scary how old I am, but it was before remote controls. And so what would happen is my dad would be sitting and watching TV and he would have me sit next to him. And then if a commercial came on, he'd, you know, give me a little kick and I'd go up and I'd <laughs> turn the channel to what he wanted. And um, we'd always get in an argument because I always wanted to watch the commercials because I was so interested in the commercials. And he had a joke saying like, oh, my gosh, you're going to be in marketing one day. I can't believe you like that stuff. And so I've always known that I love marketing. And my favorite ad as a kid that I would have an absolute fit if he was making me change would be the where's the beef from Wendy's. I, for some reason thought that was the best thing I'd ever seen in my life. It was so funny uh, for me. I don't know why, but um, that, that's what got me to really, really love advertising. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. Today, my guest on the CMO podcast is Greg Lyons, North America CMO of PepsiCo Beverages. Greg has been with Pepsi for 21 years with stints in the US, the UK, and Canada. He has been CMO of the $22 billion North America Beverage Division for three years. Greg has had an amazing award-winning career in marketing. Here are a few highlights. He's won the coveted Grand Prix for marketing effectiveness at the Cannes Festival. He launched LifeWater as a new brand in a cluttered category and grew it to 300 million plus. He launched the blockbuster Mountain Dew Kickstart. He's named by Adweek and Business Insider as one of the most innovative CMOs. And don't worry, we will talk about the most bizarre ad of all time, Mountain Dew's Puppy Monkey Baby, which he is responsible for. Here is my conversation with Greg Lyons. Welcome, Greg, to the CMO Podcast. I am so looking forward to this. And I assume we are recording this and talking to you from your home. You are correct. Thanks for having me, Jim. Excited oh, my, to be here. Uh, me too. So I want to, on a scale of one to 10, you know, we're in the middle of COVID-19. You're at home now. On a scale of one to 10, how are you doing? With 10 being outstanding. I'd give myself a good eight right now. Uh, Jim, I start every day with gratitude. Um, grateful for being part of a loving family, grateful for having my health, and grateful for being actively employed right now. And so uh, the good news is you're catching me at about one or two o'clock in the afternoon. If you ask me a little bit later, it might be a little bit lower number, but uh, I start every day as a 10 and I think I probably end up about a seven after being on Zoom all day. <laughs> I, re I read an article that uh, Zoom takes 20% more of your brain capacity when you're on it than uh, when you're in a face-to-face -face meeting because your brain's making up for stuff that it doesn't see. So we're all all day long using 20% more of our, our brain capacity. So it's a, it is a little exhausting, but overall, all good right now. Thank you for asking. We're a few months into the pandemic. And everyone's speculating about what habits are going to stick. 
with people. You know, what things will go back to, quote, normal, and which things will change. What do you think is one lasting impact from this pandemic experience all of us are going through? Well, uh, it's really interesting. We just did this study right before the pandemic, uh, and it was a study on empathy. Uh, We're on a massive journey at PepsiCo to be much more data-informed in our marketing. And what I was worried about is as we continue that journey, um, that our marketers might lose that empathy for the, the human being and treat uh, everyone as a, as a data point. And so we're doing both. Um, and we did a study right before the pandemic, not knowing the pandemic was coming, and asked people how important empathy is to them um, in their everyday lives. And so well over 90% said it was incredibly important that they were treated with empathy. And then we asked what percentage of people thought that American society was empathetic. And that number was unfortunately really low. It was 43% of people thought that uh, there was empathy in our society, including how brands um, marketed. Um, And we did that study again a couple of weeks ago, right um, in the middle of this. And it was interesting most of the numbers stayed the same, but the one that really jumped and went up over 20% was how empathetic the we are as a society in the U.S. So that's now over 50%. And, uh, you know, doing lots of studies, that doesn't jump, uh, numbers like that don't jump over a month period very often that much. And so that gives me great heart that as brands that we're being more empathetic in how we market. Um, but also as people, how we're treating each other and that we really understand and care what everyone's going through. And again, I've seen that in my department and in my household and in my town. And I think we're all going to be better off because of that. I think it's a new normal. Beautiful. So what PepsiCo product has been most important for you over the last eight weeks? Um, you know what? I drink about, I've got one right here. I drink about four or five bubblies a day. Um, they're refreshing. They've got the bubbles that keep me uh, uh, going. And, you know, they're, it's healthy and uh, keeps you hydrated. So bubbly is probably my go-to drink. I have been uh, having breakfast at home every day, like proper breakfast at home, sometimes with my kids if they get up. And uh have Trop and Quaker for breakfast every day. So I, I, I am living a full PepsiCo uh, day and night here, but I'd say Bubbly and Tropicana are probably the two that are the best for me right now. We have Tropicana in our fridge now. Of course, Mountain Dew is coming in handy. I have young people living with me now, so it's, Very it's a kind of a Mountain Dew life. And I'm having a double espresso, so just for the record. Oh, okay. <laughs> now tell me about uh, what's the biggest non-obvious change in your life? since the crisis began. And I also want to hear about what the biggest non-obvious change is for your kids. You have how many at home? So uh, I now have four at home. So this has been an interesting family uh, experiment for me as well. So I just recently got engaged and we, uh, to a, a wonderful woman named Beth, and she's got two great kids. And they just moved into my house and I have two kids. So I now have four teenagers and three dogs living in my house, and they moved in about three weeks before lockdown. And so we're on an accelerated learning curve of integrating a new family together. And so, um, you know, what uh, we're learning every day, uh, all the little idiosyncrasies that would probably take a little bit longer uh, to figure out. Um, so yeah, the new kids understand that my son is a little bit smelly and he doesn't shower so often. (laughs) And so now they're helping him with his hygiene and, um, we're learning sleep schedules and we're learning who likes to do homework when, and who's going to play more Xbox than the other person. And so lots of stuff going on in the house. Um, but I am so lucky and again, grateful to have a lot of people with me in the house um, and lots of people to hang out with and do different things with. I know a fair amount of people on my team and are living in the city right now and they're by themselves. And I think that would be 
you know, I would certainly welcome that for a few days right now, but <laughs> I think uh, going more than a few days, that would be really hard as well. So we're, we're obviously looking out for them. Well, congratulations on your engagement. Has the virus had any impact on a wedding time or wedding date? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, we were tentatively planned to, so the big move was moving in. Um, and so we, we got that in just in time. Uh, we were tentatively planning to do it this fall. We've both been married before. And so a big, um, a big wedding wasn't in our future, but I think, um, we're now potentially looking to next year instead of the fall because of this, uh, new craziness. It's tough to plan anything right now. I, we, my wife and I had seven weddings we were supposed to go to this summer. They're all off. Yeah. And most of them are pushed back a year. So. Yep. That's probably us too. Yeah. So anyway, the biggest non-obvious change in your life, professionally, personally, we've heard about. Everyone yeah, new the, in the household. But how about professionally? So it, it's actually in both parts of my life. So this is a you know, this is a game changer. This is a life-changing event we're all going through. Uh, and I personally, we can maybe talk about that later. I personally went through a life-changing event a few years ago when my wife passed away. But this one, everyone is, everyone's lives affected. And what I learned when I went through my life-changing event is that as you adjust to your new normal, you're just a little bit different as a person, as a human being. And one of the things that I think, and, and, and this new normal is a little bit worse for everyone, I think, right now. So, gosh, imagine you've lost a loved one before their time or you've lost your job or lots of people are trying to figure out how to make ends meet. There's lots of uncertainty. There's lots of stress. But I do think some good things are going to come out of this. And one of the good things that I've seen both at home and at work that I didn't realize was going to happen until it happened has to do with empathy. and. Let me start. Uh, let me start at work. So we used to run by each other in the halls and ask how How are you doing? And people would say fine, um, and then you'd move on. When we talk to each other now on our Zoom calls, the first thing we ask is How are you doing? And then we really talk about it, and we really want what's best for each other in a real authentic human way. And lots of people are struggling with this, and. I couldn't be happier with uh, the department um, and PepsiCo in general right now on how we really genuinely are showing empathy for each other and looking out for each other and, and caring for each other. And I see that how we're treating each other. And I also see that in our marketing. Um, I think that our brands are now much more in tune with how people are feeling and how we're going to market and making sure that we're not tone deaf and, you know, that we're doing things that are genuinely helping people and making lives better. So this, this empathy, um, how people are helping each other, caring about each other and, um, much more in tune with how other people are feeling, I think is going to stick coming out of this. That is a positive part. Hey, I want to just talk for a moment about uh, you lost your wife four years ago. I did. You brought that up. The day I was, or actually about the day I was named Global Marketing Officer of PNG, my younger brother, who was so close to me, was diagnosed with leukemia. Mm. And it changed a lot of how I thought about my life and my job. Yes. And actually, I think I became a better CMO because of the discussions I had with him. And, and the timing of all that. It's just one of those weird things that happen in life. How did, you know, losing your wife change how you thought about your career and mm. the, your role in life and your role at Pepsi? You've been at Pepsi 21 years. So that happened I have. in the middle. Yeah. So just how did it, if you could for our listeners, I think it would be helpful. Yeah, of course. So uh, my wife passed away right before I became CMO too. So uh, eerily similar uh, timing there. Um, she, she had brain cancer and she suffered for about three years, uh, in it. And, um, I remember a specific event that was really life-changing for me. And I mean, obviously just going through that whole process was life-changing. 
And it's just the the support we got uh, both at Pepsi, but also at home was overwhelmingly positive and wonderful and uh, so grateful for that. But um, she started to lose um, how her, her thought processes and who she was. And that was very sad and very scary. And the woman um, that I married was not the same at all. Um, there's just the synapses weren't firing. It's a terrible disease, but I'll never forget. We went and got her last scan and there was, um, tumors all over the scan. Like it was like dynamite exploding everywhere. And we went back and we knew that was going to be the last scan. And, you know, she, she understood it, but it, um, I don't know if it was sinking in. We put her in bed and I was in the next room and she called me and it was um, her old voice. It was really strange. You could kind of tell like they were firing again, the synapses. And she said, hey, I just need to tell you something. Um, I know, excuse me, it's, but it's still, it's, it's really weird. I'm over, yeah, I, I mean, I've, we've moved on, but it's still incredibly um, touching when I think about this. She said, I, I have, I, I understand, I have something to tell you and I'm thinking clearly now I need to get this off, off my chest. And I imagine the perspective of someone who knows that they're going to die and they know they don't have a, a lot of time to tell you something and they need to give you really clear advice really quickly. And so she said, it's, it's three things that are important in life. She said, um, number one, your family and your friends. Um, and then she gave, me, she gave me a review on each of these three <laughs> very quickly. And so she said, family and friends are obviously the most important thing in, in life. And you're not paying enough attention to, um, to your family. And when she said family, it wasn't just immediate family. It was mother and father and sister um, and aunts and uncles. She said, you know, you keep up with them, but you're not investing as much as you should. Um, and obviously you're going to need to with the kids. And same with friends, like you keep in touch with them, but you're not investing. So you need to do better on that. Uh, number two is your health. And she said, you're pretty good at that, but you need to exercise more and um, stick to it. Uh, you, you don't stick to exercise and don't underestimate how important your health is because once that goes, um, your life is forever changed. And she said, number three is one that she felt I was doing a good job on, but she said she wishes she had done different. And that's um, spend time doing what you love. She said she was in a job for a long time that she's like, what a waste. I hated that job. I was, you know, I spent over half my life in a job that I didn't wake up every morning excited to go to. Make sure that you do what you love um, and spend time doing that. So three pretty simple things, right? Family and friends, your health and do what you love. And so going into my job, um, I had been much more focused on work, quite frankly, than family and friends and health. And even in my job, I was spending time uh, doing stuff. There's some things I absolutely loved about my job, most things, and there's some things that I didn't love about my job. And um, I came out of um, that talk, and I think that I've been much, much more focused as a leader on balance. Um, making sure that people get energy outside of work so they can come to work with energy, making sure that we really understand what motivates people and what they love doing and putting them in jobs that they feel excited about and that they love, and um, just making sure that um, we are being human beings at work and, and caring about each other and understanding that life is much more than, than just work. And so uh, much more balanced as a CMO, uh, still obviously incredibly competitive and want to win and do amazing stuff and, and have fun. But um, it did put my whole life in, in perspective um, and it affected me at home and at work. 
Do you have any rituals to ensure you stay that focused on everything you just talked about? Well, uh, first of all, I've told an awful lot of people that story. Um, hopefully more. Hopefully it'll help some other people. Um, and so I've got some really good friends and uh, my fiance Beth now that remind me uh, if they see me getting out of whack and, and they're pretty blunt about it. So uh, they're keeping me honest. Uh, and I have started every day with five to 10 minutes of meditation. And I think about that when I meditate. Um, and so I guess that's a little bit of a ritual. Mm -hmm. That ritual is only a year old though. Um, I, I had always resisted doing it cause I never prioritized and man, am I happy that I prioritize it, especially now it, it helps me. Yeah, yeah. So the ritual every morning is reminding myself of that and then gratitude. Yeah. Beautiful. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one at Deloitte. However, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. Hey, listen, that is an uh, amazing and poignant backdrop to the rest of what we're going to talk about. And some of this maybe will feel a bit mundane after that. But I, I do want to use that backdrop to talk a bit about, you know, the, the future of everything. You know, we're at a time when everyone's speculating about commerce habits, consumer habits, relationships. And you're one of the top thought leaders in business, certainly in marketing and brand building. You've done some remarkable things in your career. So I want to play a little bit of a game with you to get into this podcast. And I haven't done this before, so it's a first for me. We'll see how it goes. Okay, me too. Yeah, right. So I'm calling it the future of, and I'm going to do the future of something. Then I'd like you to give a, you know, a brief comment on that or, you know, just a thought. Uh, and so I don't want to spend the entire podcast on this, but I just think it would be an interesting way to start. Fun. And the first, the first you ready to go? You game? I'm ready. I'm All good. Right. So the first one, an easy one. The future of brand purpose. Yeah, obviously the brands that uh, have strong purpose are thriving right now. Um, and I do think it's interesting. I think this pandemic has moved a few things forward, probably three to five years. Uh, I think how people shop on e-commerce for foods and beverages is certainly moving forward a few years. Uh, and I do think the brands with purpose, the brands that handle themselves that are authentically clear on what they stand for and are truly making, uh, have a societal role or making the world a better place, I think are the ones that people are going to remember more so during this time uh, coming out of it. And so I, I think the future of purpose is as marketers and as brands, we're going to move there in, at an accelerated pace and it's going to become more prevalent than ever. And I think the world's going to be a better place because of it. We just got to be careful that we do it in the right way. Um, lots of times we screw that up as marketers. Yeah, we'll talk about that in a few minutes. The future of advertising. Well, advertising is such a difficult word. Um, it means so many different things to, to different people. But um, I got a question yesterday from someone about, hey, is this going to accelerate agency use versus in-house creative use? And um, I think the answer to that is no uh, for us. I think we're pretty well advanced. We have an in-house creative agency and we use wonderful external agency. And I think you always need a balance. Um, I do think the content that we're advertising as we move to more purpose brands um, might shift a little bit, but um, I think that um, the way that it'll probably shift the most is what I'm talking about, uh, or what I talked about earlier is I really feel that the brands that are going to be best are the ones with empathy that are really going to be 
talking about things that are the most relevant to uh, people who are taking in that content. Obviously, it's um, advertising can be more targeted than ever as technology increases our ability to segment and, and find the right people with the right message at the right time. But I guess in summary, it's going to be um, more empathetic, um, more targeted, um, more purpose-led, um, and I think more effective. The future of challenger brands versus established brands. Hmm. You know, there's some data saying that the majority of growth now is coming from established brands, which is very different from a few months ago. Interesting yeah, exactly. dynamic. I was, I was just going to say that. Uh, we feel really good about our established brands right now. Although we are acting in a way that challenger brands act internally right now. So we're uh, making faster decisions. We're being a little bit more nimble and, uh, you know, trying some new things on uh, our go-to-market. But I do think that, um, I think both are always going to exist. I think when people are really panicked and stressed out, these established brands that have built trust over the years are the ones that are going to win. And so certainly in the next year, I feel really great about established brands. But eventually, I think uh, challenger brands will come up. And I think that's good for established brands. I think having run in a bunch of established brands myself, I think that keeps us on our toes and makes us better. I agree. You referred to this one, but the future of food and beverage commerce. Right. So um, e-commerce is still a very small part of uh, food and beverage sales right now. I do think it's also the fastest growing. Um, and I think uh, I think it's got a real shot. If you look at China, you know, you're at 25, 30 percent of food and beverages in, uh, through e-commerce. I don't know if we'll ever get there in the U.S., but it's certainly... Um, it's going to be a, a much bigger role than we have now. And I think our retailers are getting really good at it. So if you look at the Walmarts and the Kroger's of the world, they're clicking collect. They're getting very, very savvy on it. And then, of course, you got the Amazons and Instacart. So I think that's going to be a really robust competitive uh, channel. And you got some very smart and savvy and well-funded players there. And I do think it's it is going to make it easier as, as more and more consumers try it, it's just getting easier and easier. And so, um, I think that will continue to be the fastest growing channel. And I feel good about our position there right now. The future of the Super Bowl halftime show. Aha. <laughs> well, um, I, I certainly hope we have, my goodness, I miss sports so much, Jim. Um, I was watching my kids have a catch outside last night, and that was entertainment for me. I I cannot wait for sports to come back, and gosh, I hope that it's soon. Um, and I, I really hope we have an NFL season and that we have a Super Bowl this year. And if we do have a Super Bowl this year, I or if we do have an NFL season, when we do, knock on wood, um, I think there's just going to be this emotional outpouring of yes it's back and uh, i'm thrilled that we're we're a lead sponsor of the nfl i think the halftime show is when our brand pepsi is at its best um it's sports it's music it's culture and it's wonderful entertainment and i felt great about last year's uh or this year's i guess and mm -hmm. um i think next year is going to be even even bigger and better so uh, i'm excited about it you always do that. It's always bigger and better. We try. I'm yeah, you top, do. Topping last year's is going to be It's going to be hard. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was fabulous. The future of work in companies like yours. Yeah, I touched on this a little bit too. I do think um, we're making decisions a lot faster. I'll talk to the marketing department. We, have, um, we used to meet once every two weeks, my leadership team. We meet every morning on Zoom right now. Um, and it's quick. Uh, is just giving updates, making sure everyone's on the same page and making decisions. I think that um, the decisions that we're making used to be we would pretty much stick into the silo of marketing. Obviously, we'd work with the other functions on, on big programs, but 
the decisions we're making right now, I feel are much more end to end um, and holistic invo involving supply chain and the channels and so and and the sales team. And so I feel that um, that faster decision making, that end to end thinking, we're much more uh, nimble. We're moving a whole bunch of resources around. We've got project teams going to make us stronger coming out of this. I think those, uh, along with empathy, I think those are here to stay. And I think that's going to make us better. Um, so I hope that that's the future of the marketing department. Let's talk about uh, this CMO of PepsiCo North America Beverages, your job. You lead a $22 billion business with a bunch of brands. We all know them, Diet Pepsi, Mountain Dew, Aquafina, Life Water, and a whole bunch more. I want to start with... What the heck is the job? What <laughs> what do you do? What's your work? Well, it's a lot of Zoom calls right now. Uh, but yeah, I, I run marketing for uh, beverages in the U.S. And um, that does, it's funny, my mom asked me the same question. And so the, the way I, I talk to her about it is I basically want to make sure that um, these beautiful brands that we have uh, are doing well and that they're growing and that people um, are, are loving them. And uh, it's obviously a little bit more complex than that. But um, what I've been spending a lot of time on recently is just trying to make sure that the culture in our organization is the best it can be. That was before this whole COVID um, uh, Thing that's happened. But I've got such amazing leaders uh, on the team. We've got a wonderful leadership team, all of whom who genuinely care about people, care about the brands, amazing backgrounds. And so as CMO, what I'm trying to do uh, better every day is let them lead and let them determine where the brands are going and make sure that from a capability standpoint, from a culture standpoint, from a competitive standpoint, strategic standpoint, that we're setting ourselves up for the future. I do find myself um, sometimes when businesses are and brands are a little bit in trouble, uh, dive in deeper uh, than I, I wish I, I was. Um, and that sometimes is part of the job. That's a real difficult balance. But I do think that um, if you surround yourself with great people and you have a culture where people are having fun, they trust each other, they feel valued, um, the rest of it, uh, you know, just getting in the door at PepsiCo, gosh, I don't know if I could do that anymore. You have to take a difficult test and um, we just get the best of the best. So once you're in, you certainly have the horsepower um, and we've got a ton of great marketers in our team. So uh, I've been spending a lot of my time just on the people and the culture uh, and clarity on where we're going as a department. You spoke a few, used a few words to describe the culture you have and you're trying to strengthen. If there's really one part of the Pepsi culture that you must absolutely continue to preserve and build upon, what is that? And is there one part of the culture you're trying to change? Yeah, so uh, three years ago, we did a pulse. Uh, and this is a little embarrassing to share, but um, it's true, so I will. And the pulse in the department, um, there's one question that says, do I feel valued at work? Um, and 50%, it scored uh, at the top level, 50%. So that means 50% of people were coming to work every day. Remember what my wife said? And they're not feeling valued. Uh, imagine spending two thirds of your life with people at a company and not feeling valued, um, heartbreaking. And so that was something that um, we spent a lot of time on trying to make sure that everyone could bring their whole selves to work and feel valued and be working on something that um, was valued. And so we spent a lot of time on that as a department and I'm happy to say that that number is well over 90% right now. And so that was a do different that we wanted to make sure um, people uh, were feeling bad. How did you go from 50 to 90? I know it's a complicated story, but is there one, one or two things that really drove that? 
it was, uh, yeah, the one thing is we prioritized it. Um, and they're, they're, um, you know, our business um, was in a difficult place at that time and we're in a much better place now. So that had something to do with it. Um, but just making sure that all of the top down and bottom up that we talked about it and that we made sure um, all the leaders were focused on it. Um, it's not that hard. Um, again, it's it's being a human being, making sure you understand what motivates people, how they're feeling, just checking in and making sure that um, there, we had a little bit of an empowerment uh, problem. And so lots of decisions were made up at the top. And so we've tried to push that down a little bit too. And so those two things, just prioritizing it, uh, making sure that we were empathetic and that we were uh, being human beings at work and caring about each other and then empowerment. So those were the big ones. Um, and I would say prioritizing it was the biggest because every, no one wanted someone to feel that way. Um, we just didn't realize it and hadn't prioritized it. Yeah, got it. What is it about the culture you never want to lose? That special something. It's interesting. When people do leave Pepsi, um, I hear two things. Uh, man, I didn't realize the level of talent that we had there. Uh, and two, gosh, um, the people there are really special. Um, and now everyone will say that, but um, I feel, especially in the department that I'm in right now, that um, We've got we've got three things that we prioritize. One is caring, so we really care about each other. Uh, two is fun, and we try to have as much fun as we possibly can. Imagine being out of school and going to a job where you grind all day and you don't have fun. Um, and, and then three is it's it's lumped in um, inclusion, but it, it, the the thought is basically being able to bring yourself to work. Uh, your full self to work uh, without having to change who you are to fit in at work. And imagine also how difficult that would be, how much emotional energy that would take of like, okay, I got to spend two thirds of my life not being myself and fitting into a certain culture. Um, and then I can relax and be myself at home. And so those three things are the ones that we're focused on right now as a department. And I feel that we're doing a good job on all those. We, we do pulses quarterly just to keep track of if we're getting off, off the rails. I, you're, you're a leader who does elicit tremendous creativity from your team. And you see that throughout your career, the awards mm -hmm. you've won and the brands you've worked on, the initiatives you've brought to market. So caring, bringing your whole self to work, fun, is that what helps you bring creativity from your teams? Is there anything else? You remind me a little bit when you speak about, you know, you remind me of Fernando Machado at Burger King. He's mm. another leader who just brings out tremendous creativity over and over again and creates a culture of fun, freedom, and, and accountability, of course. So yes. what is it about you? Is it those things or is there something else that enables you to to, to uh, elicit, inspire so much, so much creativity? I think uh, we talked about spend time doing what you love. Uh, and the favorite part of my job is when we do awesome, amazing creative that breaks through. Um, and that, you know, you're just um, at a bar and people next to you are talking about it because it's so much fun. Uh, and it's touched them in some way. It's made them feel something. And so it's always been a massive passion of mine. And so I probably focused on that more as a leader uh, throughout, throughout my career uh, than anything else because it's what I love doing the most. Um, and so we do have a creative excellence training program, um, and we've just rejiggered re that um, in the last year. And we've took best practices from a lot of different people. Um, Heineken being uh, one that I want to thank you for the creative ladder that we've stolen. Um, but uh, I think it comes down to a, a few things that I've always really pushed the team on. One is treating your agencies well. Uh, make sure that you're incredibly clear to your agencies. You treat them as a partner and not as a vendor. 
um, and that you're asking and expecting and holding them and yourselves accountable for special work. Um, lots of times I see marketers check the box uh, and approve stuff if it hits the brief. Um, and lots of times you can hit the brief with creative that's really boring and that doesn't connect at a, at a human and emotional level. And so um, I have spent a lot of time and energy trying to um, create the culture that celebrates amazing creative. And I think if you ask my team, I don't know if they through the years would say that I've done that um, in an inspiring way. And so I'm trying to get better at that. I think I've often pushed and said, no, that's not there yet. And um, sometimes that's very difficult because creative is so subjective, right? And so what I'm doing my very best at right now is to make sure that we have all the capabilities and the training in place. And then I step away and let the people um, uh, create amazing stuff. And I feel really good about some of the stuff we're, we're getting to recently. And uh, hats off to my team because, man, are they good. We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website. And then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual-first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. While we're in this creativity thing, I just want to go a little bit to a sidebar. You are responsible for maybe the most bizarre ad ever created. <laughs> Puppy I monkey baby. I, Puppy monkey yes. baby. Super yep. Bowl a couple of years ago was the most popular ad by all the meters. So can you tell our readers, our listeners, a little bit about you know, the idea they can look it up, just Google puppy monkey baby. But how did you have the courage to say yes to that? It's strange. Mm. I've done some yeah, strange that, advertising in my life, but that's, that's another <laughs> that level. That takes the cake. Yes, I agree. Um, so uh, I was running Mountain Dew at the time and we were, that brand was on fire then. Uh, we had gained share, I think, I don't know, 36 straight months in a row. Um, and we had this, uh, sub brand called kickstart that, um, you know, Mountain Dew is a little bit edgy brand and kickstart was a little bit younger and a little bit more edgy than Mountain Dew, it had a little bit more caffeine in it. And what we we're trying to do was figure out, uh, how to tell consumers exactly what kickstart was. And we did a lot of research and it, it came to pass that kickstart was three things combined and consumers loved all three of those. And so it was Mountain Dew, um, juice, and a little extra caffeine. Um, and so we briefed, um, we were working with BBDO, uh, one of my favorite agencies, and we briefed them and they came back with a probably six or seven ideas and none of which were in my opinion super bowl worthy like remember i was just telling you about how sometimes i'm not that inspiring i basically killed all seven immediately said sorry go back and try again and then round two came and we didn't get that and then finally round three came and um the creative who presented it was so funny like it just all of us just burst out laughing. And we we're like, what? What did you just say? And he's like, Puppy Monkey Baby. We used his voice in the ad. We tried to get some professional Oh, I didn't voice. know that. Wow. No, we tried to get some professional voice because that's bad because that's a conflict of interest almost because he gets extra money for that. And we tried to beat it with a professional, um, but we couldn't. And so we ended up forcing him to do it. Um, and it um it just struck a chord and then you know the young people at that time 
really were loving random humor. If you looked what they were really um, sparking to um, on social, it was just stuff that you would scratch your head and you're like, what? And so the stuff that my kids were into and the stuff that lots of young people were into was, uh, was random. And so it, it checked that box. I'll never, but back then we would take our advertising and get it approved by uh, Indra at the time, and then the board of directors before we went to the Super Bowl. And uh, hats off again to Indra and Al Carey at the time and, and the board, because none of them got it. But they all said, hey, you've got this brand. We trust you because the brand's doing so well and um, go for it. And yeah, it really took off. It was a lot of fun. Andrew was your CEO at the time, but we're going to talk about her in a moment. Um, your career, I want to look back a little bit on your career. And in a funny way, we talked about this already. It's a bit of a mirror image of mine. You know, well, I've always aspired to be you, Jim. Well, no, so, come on. Uh, <laughs> no, but really, you, you're, you've been with one company 20 plus years. You started in the U.S. in brand management. You worked in multiple countries, multiple brands. You know, you became... You, were, you worked in Europe, I believe, in Canada. You became CMO. Uh, that's, that was my last position at P&G. You've gotten a lot of awards along the way, blah, blah, blah. I want to ask you, on that rich career at, at your, your amazing company, your track record at Pepsi on creativity and results is, you know, up there with the best. You know, what, is there one defining experience in that career that has kind of made you the leader you are? We certainly talked on the personal side, a very defining experience for you. And is there a mentor along that career that really stands out? I know you've had many, many, but is there one that really stands out? Yes. So I've had many defining experiences. Um, Something that really shook me and made me uh, change for the better, I think, is one of the biggest mistakes I've made uh, in in my career. And I had just become director. Uh, I was running the Tostitos brand at Frito-Lay. And um, we were on fire on Tostitos. Um, I, I think I took it over when it was growing 4%. I think the plan was to grow 5%. And I think we finished the year growing 11% or something like that. So we were crushing it. I was incredibly cocky. I thought I knew this marketing thing and um, and how to run a brand, and and I was wrong. And so uh, we had the head of supply chain come up to me and say, "Hey, Greg, I can um, increase the product quality of Tostitos massively and save you five million dollars. All we need to do is put a window over the ba- the bag, uh, or put." take the window off the bag and make it all clear um, or opaque. And we've got this wonderful new technology where we can print beautiful photography on the bags. And so um, you should do that. And I said, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. So I went and negotiated with the CFO. He said I could take the savings and put it into marketing instead of at the bottom line. We had a strategy right there that people were eating Tostitos uh, the different types of Tostitos, whether they're scoops or bite-sized rounds or gold, and all for the same occasions. And there was no differentiation in occasions or dips with them. We wanted to get people to buy our dips with our chips. So I thought, what a wonderful opportunity. We're going to put different occasions on the different bags. We're going to put our dips on the bags, and we'll get cross-purchase. It'll be beautiful. We'll spend more a we went out and tested it uh, online. It tested brilliantly. People loved it. We tested it in real life. Um, people seemed to like it. And we launched it. And sales went down, I think, 5% overnight. And they went down because I didn't understand um, the shopper. I understood the consumer, but I didn't understand the shopper. And so here's what mom does. Here's what I learned. Here's what mom does when she goes and buys tortilla chips. She looks through the window to see which ones are broken and which ones are whole because she's going to dip them. And the competitor still had a window and we didn't have a window. And so she's like, well, I'm going to buy the whole ones. 
I'm not going to buy Tostitos. And so, man, did we put that window back on pretty quickly. But it was a wonderful learning for me that, man, do I not know the answers to everything. And I should really, and man, do I need to understand our consumers better. Um, What an obvious miss there when you take a step back and think about it. But it all seemed so good because I just felt like I, I knew everything and I didn't. And so that really helped me be much more consumer centric in my career um, and prioritize that. Um, and when you are consumer centric and you really understand uh, your core consumer and shopper, at a human level and at a shopping level and what's important to them, your gut becomes better and you know what creative is going to work with them and you know how to um, launch innovation in a better way. And it just makes your job easier. Um, and so that, that I think was a defining moment in my career that made me a much, much better marketer. I'd say I was more of a good project manager and uh, general manager could get results, but but not a great marketer back then. One of my biggest failures in my career was a very similar one, and I'll, I won't get into that right now. But I no, I'd love to hear it. I, I ignored the consumer. I launched Secret into the Czech and Slovak republics as a new general manager, and I sent samples out to every woman in both countries. This because it was such a great product, and and I my sample actually lasted the consumer six months. So we had no shipments for months. <laughs> I mean, goose eggs. Because I didn't, I didn't go to learn about our habits. I sent yep. way too big a sample. Yep. So yep. anyway, it's, it's, uh, how do you keep that, that lesson that you learned? How do you, how do you ensure your, your team is consumer-centric and, and that they don't make that mistake that you made, that they learn from that? What do you do to ensure that they're really, really empathetic and sensing and yep so we have a a program we call human eyes uh see what we did there but it's e-y-e-s and um what each team does once a month is we zoom or we skype actually with consumers um and uh the core target of each of their brands and talk to them not just um mostly not about our products just about them what's going on in their lives how are they feeling how are they doing and um, the fact that we've prioritized that um, and the fact that we continue to do that um, just keeps consumer centricity uh, high uh, for everyone in the department. Um, the other thing is uh, Ramon has come in and Your new CEO. He, yeah. he's, he's the best. And man, does he really push consumer centricity across the entire organization. And so um, I decided what my, when I do not want to leave my current position until our entire PB&A, PepsiCo Beverages North America, not just the marketing department, but the entire company is truly, truly consumer centric. And we're well on our way. Um, but I still think there's a, a little bit of work to do. So it's, it's high on my list, Jim, right now. And we, um, we talk about it a lot. Um, and it's helpful to have a CEO who's pushing down the same message. Well, Ramon followed Indra. And I want to just talk for a minute or two about Indra, who I know and I've been admired for many years. She took the brand purpose and company purpose thing very seriously. I don't know, yes. 13, 14 years ago, maybe even longer. Took a lot right. of heat from investors. Just say, hey, focus on the snacks, focus on the drinks, get rid of this purpose thing, it's too fluffy. And she held in there, and your company is far stronger because of that. And I recently read a story she wrote in Harvard Business Review about that experience. Incredible story. What's one lesson from that time with Indra that could help others who were on the brand purpose, company purpose journey? Yeah, bravery. Uh, She's the smartest person I know. Um, and, uh, she's just, she's got more passion, um, than anyone I've ever met as well. So not only is she the smartest, she's the most passionate and her passion was making PepsiCo a great place, um, and a successful company. And, um, you know, she had a lot of doubters, uh, quite frankly, um, 
whether it was because where she she was from outside the U.S. or because she was a woman, all bad, you know, things stacked against her that shouldn't have been stacked against her. And so she needed to be incredibly strong and resilient. And she was so um, passionate about performance with purpose and so intelligent about how she went about making sure that she would explain it to you in a way that it just made sense. Like our business will be better off if we do this. Our shareholders will be more happy when we do this because it's not just the right thing for, uh, because it's the right thing for the world, it's going to be the right thing for our business. And it's not a trade-off. It, it makes us stronger and very convincing. And so you probably had a few people doubting uh, back, you know, when she, I think she was CEO for over 10 years, right? Mm -hmm. um, so when she first started, but um, I'd say internally, we were all there very quickly, just because she was such a um, passionate, compelling, intelligent uh, person and speaker. And uh, you would never out logic into her mind. I, like I agree with that. Steel trap. Um, and so, uh, you know, even if you disagreed, she'd convince you somehow because she's so smart. Um, so, yeah, uh, hats off to her for being ahead of her time. And we're, we're all better off because of it. Greg, this has been such a fabulous discussion. I want to end it with a bit of a lightning round and to get your okay. perspective on, I don't know, a few issues. What's a brand now that you would really miss if it went away? A favorite brand? Uh, Nike. Love Nike. Love what they're doing. I just hired someone from Nike um, to run our new energy business. And um, hats off to how they market uh, the quality of their brands. Um, I think they're a brilliant company and I own a lot of their stuff. Who is the most important inspiration in your life? Um, I've got to say my former wife, uh, for those words that I shared with you. Um, and while she's passed, she's still in my life every day. Um, so, uh, I know that's a difficult and probably not the answer you're looking for, but, um, uh, I do think those three things, uh, guide, mm -hmm. guide my life right now. Where did you meet her? Just curiously. Where did you meet your wife? Uh, I was in business school at Kellogg and she audited a class. I think she was husband hunting, but, uh, I don't know <laughs> if she was really good in, but it worked. Yeah, um, it sure did. And so, yeah, I met her in Chicago. Got it. So last question, Greg, who would you like to listen to in the CMO podcast? Who else should we have on? Um, you know what? I think that um, I've been pretty impressed with what Chipotle's doing lately. Um, and um, have you had Chris on yet? It's a good idea. I know Chris. Yeah, I used to work with him a lot when he was the CMO at Taco Bell and I was running Mountain Dew because we obviously do a lot of fun stuff together. And then uh, Brian, the CEO, mm -hmm. is just an amazing guy as well. And so um, I've been pretty impressed uh, over the last year of some of the stuff that they've done. You can obviously see it's reflected in the stock price and, and they're being really nimble right now. And none of it is, um, you know, so um, out there that you can't get your head around it, but I love how simple it is and it's meaningful difference. And so uh, hats off to them. They understand their consumers and they understand their brand. Exactly. Comes right. down it's to that. Not, Comes down to it's that. It's not that hard, Jim, is it? Yeah, yeah. So, Greg, uh, this has been just a wonderful conversation. Thank you for how we opened it. Thank you for being so candid and honest and personal. I think it will help so many. It helped me. And I just love this. I could go for another hour, but we'll, we'll do another one with you after COVID's over. And sports are back. How's that? I can't wait. Hey, I really appreciate this. Um, I've enjoyed this um, significantly more than most other interviews. So thanks for being so human on it. And um, I wish you and your family all the best in this crazy time. That was my conversation with Greg Lyons. And wow, that conversation went to places I never expected. I, I was... I was amazed by so many things. He spoke about his wife who died several years ago and the three lessons he carries forward today from, from her life. He talks about the culture at Pepsi that he's trying to build, the importance of caring, the importance of letting people bring their whole self to work, to having fun. 
And he spoke about his biggest failure in his career, and that was just not paying attention to what happens in the aisle with the shopper. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribe so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.